You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 362. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya! Hey, sir, hey, sir. Good to be back in the saddle. Good to have you back. Hello, <laughs> yeah. hello. Hello, hello. Hey, sir, hey, sir. But where is where is Annika? Annika's not here. Uh, we don't we don't actually know. Uh <laughs> we she gone missing. Yeah, yeah. People yeah, people just come and go this these these days <laughs> apparently. So, uh I've heard you had a couple of things like a, a, a stomach bug or something. Oh, but yeah, yeah. What yeah, have yeah. You, what what else have you been up to? Yeah, yeah, I mean, no. We haven't talked to you for ages like No, weeks. no, it feels like it, doesn't it? So, <laughs> no, no, there was an emergency came coming up just when we were recording the show before last. So, I couldn't mm. be there and then uh, I was sort of Fully prepared to come back last week, but then I had a stomach bug, and uh, <sighs> let's no, let's not go into that detail. It was not pleasant. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> it was, it was very. It was just for a day and a half, or maybe two days. So I was fine. I'm fine now. But uh, okay. well, you know, glad to hear that. Shit happens, as they say. Ooh, <laughs> aye, aye, aye. <laughs> You know, when we were traveling around together, I mean, we spent almost two weeks together. We got, kind of got used to each other's terrible jokes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It was good It was good to get to know each other like that. We haven't, I don't know if, you, if we've talked about that, but we haven't spent time like that before, ever. People may no. not be uh, aware, no. but we are doing this remotely from different countries. And we do meet yeah. up once in a while, especially before COVID, we did. But uh, Australia was uh, two weeks, very, uh, I almost said intimately connected, and we shared rooms and, and all of that. And uh, it was a good opportunity to actually get to know you, Andras, right? Yeah, likewise, <laughs> likewise. And yeah. um, I know I can I can be sometimes a little bit too much uh, in person, kind of have that feeling occasionally, but that's normal, <laughs> right? So we, we really spent a lot of time together. Yeah, we did. We did. So, um, yeah. And by the way, whoever's interested in the details of our tour can yes. read about it on Skeptical Inquirer because Anika's article is now on Skeptical Inquirer about our tour. And um, it was really nice reliving the memories through uh, through reading that article. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And, yeah. and we thank again all the Australian friends of ours who made that happen. Because yes. you guys were amazing. <laughs> yes. And I, I can also personally thank the, the New Zealand skeptics that I met. Oh, you yeah. didn't meet them. But me yeah. and Claire, we Claire Klingenberg, we went over to uh, New Zealand for almost a week. And uh, that was great. But I've mentioned that before. But again, they, yeah. we, we had a lovely time there as well. Poor people. They just lost a prime minister oh, of yes. significance. I mean, yes. she's she's been such a great example to women all across the world. And uh, oh, now, now everyone is talking about that. Yes, um, and it was a bit unexpected, wasn't it? It was just it was, six, yeah. six months before election or something like that. And uh, sad to see her go. I, to be honest, I don't follow New Zealand skeptic. Uh, yeah. Sorry, New Zealand politics, I should say. But <laughs> uh, so I don't know exactly where she stood politically, but internationally, she made a very good impression on everyone. So. 
Yeah, yeah and she was um, the, the head of labor, so that tells you a little bit of uh, where she stands, politically speaking. But uh, I think her down-to-earth kind of attitude with her very nice personal touch, I think yeah. uh, that was her power. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I would like to see much more politicians like her, mm-hmm. um, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. All right, so one thing happened when, when I was away. Before we get okay. to, the, to the meat of the show, I'll have to t- yeah, talk about it. back to this. Europe then. <laughs> yeah, back to Europe, back to Sweden. The VOF, the Swedish Skeptics, mm-hmm. announced the awards for the Confounders of the Year and also for the Enlightener of the Year. This is the mm-hmm. two different awards uh, that the Swedish Skeptics give out every year. So confounder, I know it's not a very good translation, but to me it sounds funny, so I say it. I think it, the, the meaning it gets across. So if we start with the confounders, that because there were actually two people, they had uh, two two organizations, I should say, that had to that got to split this. It was uh, the two evening papers called Expressen and Aftonbladet. Probably doesn't mean a lot to us, well, to the Swedish listeners. They know what it is. They are. Uh, big so tabloids evening papers and they are very well known they got the confounder prize because of their repeated reporting of anecdotes of people who feel that they've been helped by unproven and alternative remedies or whatever you should call it special diets special things like that and what they have promoted indirectly by reporting on these anecdotes are banning all white sugars. And white sugar isn't good, but it doesn't cure cancer to cut it out, right? And other things that are unproven. They have especially focused on a several, both of them actually, on hypothero- oh, it's a mouthful. hypotheriosis. <laughs> I think that's how you pronounce it. It's also called underactive thyroid or hypothyroidism. So this is a... Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Now, oh, now I understand. You know what it is? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The thyroid is this special organ that you have in your throat. Not in your throat, but around your throat. And it is responsible for a, a certain hormones and stuff. And if it doesn't work properly, then you get ill. And that's serious, but you don't cure it by cutting out all white sugars in your diet. Do, yeah. I mean, don't, don't don't eat too much sugar anyway. That That's not the point. The point is you can't cure it by homemade remedies. And that's the impression you get from their articles. And reporting on people's subjective perception of what may or may have not helped them is problematic. It creates confusion in several ways. First of all, we know that people sometimes recover spontaneously. So Mm -hmm. it may not have to do with whatever intervention they had. Second of all, some of these people may be self-diagnosed or or even misdiagnosed. So how can we know what ailment they were recovering from? They think they had this uh, hypothyroidism, but maybe it was something else. And this is not to dismiss their own experience, because it is very, very convincing to you do something and then suddenly you feel better. Of course you feel that that is what helped. But we know that this is not what science tells us. This is not how you investigate things. You need to do big controlled studies to know what's going on. And the thing is, both of these newspapers, they also have good and evidence-based articles sometimes. 
which actually that's good, right? But it actually confuses things because that makes them more trustworthy. And then when yes. they mix, give and mix, and you you don't know. So that was, I think, very well deserved. Confounders of the year, Expressen and Aftonbladet. The Enlightener of the Year appointment was a little bit unusual. Uh, it was given to a heavy metal band called <laughs> Sabaton. Sabaton. Okay. So they are Swedish, but mostly they have English lyrics. And uh, so they may be known to some of our listeners. They sing almost entirely about war from an historic angle. They've been around for about 20 years. And the reason they got the prize is that for every song that they publish, not only do they have the lyrics explained on their website, but they also have articles that are fact-checked and validated by actual historians and academics. They have a YouTube channel called the Sabaton History Channel. And it is in English. You can check it out. Okay. Uh, and there's over 100 um, videos there, and they deliver those with an actual historian. So it's not them speculating. They have brought in an historian that they collaborate with. The last one, for example, was about the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which was mm-hmm. is considered, and probably rightly so, the, the start of the First World War. So it's really good. Uh, they even debunk common myths they say you will have heard that this happened and this happened but actually recent uh, discoveries says that that's a false thing blah, 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 blah. so it's very unexpected and unusual for a heavy metal band to fact check and to to communicate historic facts like this and uh, the board of VOF, the Swedish skeptics, thought that should be recognized. But I should say that this decision has been criticized and uh, actually created quite a stir. One thing is that eight years ago, Sabaton, the band, gave a concert in Crimea after the Russian invasion, which was uh, not very smart, uh, to be honest. That was a very bum move. They also, one of the band members also afterwards defended that appearance in words that were um, not very fortunate. So some people are calling this band Putin huggers and the like. I would say, having been in contact with them, I would say that this is not what they are. For instance, last year, last spring, they held a, a manifestation in the UK against the war in Ukraine. And they have publicly stated that they fully support international law and borders and that invasion of another country cannot be justified. Uh, And even though they sing about war, they have also repeatedly said that all wars are bad. And we sing about Mm -hmm. war to highlight what it is, but also what's bad with it. So they can do a song. They did one song about a Swedish king. And from his point of view... You know, he thinks he's a hero. But then on the same album, they have a song about a, a anonymous soldier who questions, why the hell am I being sent out to this meaningless war, for, <laughs> dying for things that I have no thing? So they take on different personas in different songs to highlight all aspects of war. And I think that is, if you only listen to some of the songs, you may think, well, oh, they are glorifying war. And uh, But I don't see it like that. Anyway, so because of uh, all things considered, the board of VOF, they feel that Sabaton shouldn't be cancelled forever because of some things that 
goes quite long back in time and that their YouTube channel and the work what they're doing there is very extraordinary and should be awarded. Yeah. And the, 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 the debate can go on. And I, I know that people do not always agree. We got some criticism in the board for, for, for this appointment, but... Well, yeah, the, but it, when it, it comes to war, it's not a debate really. It's like a war of words, um, mm. always because this it's full of emotions or to to everyone. It, it becomes very emotional, I think, and if, especially yeah. if you don't really look into all the angles of this, you could yeah. get the wrong impression. Anyway, yeah, that is how it is. We also, I should say, before we leave the Swedish skeptics, we. Also gave an honorable mention to two local journalists that have made a series of undercover reports regarding homeopaths and anti-vax doctors. So they they went undercover and said, I feel a little bit ill, and then got all kinds of very crazy uh, recommendations of how to treat that. These two um, journalists are called Matilda Skarhag and Eva Ederholt. That will not mean a lot to a lot of our listeners, but still, <laughs> they deserve to be recognized for their good work. So. Good. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Yeah, we haven't been that busy, but uh, the first um, Skeptical Club, because we have a monthly event called the Skeptical Club, which is yeah. a hybrid event. Like, uh, we have a... a is it in person, physical? An in person, physical, and an online version of it as well. So, ah. uh, yeah, and plus we put the the recording of it onto our YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And in November, we had someone talking about uh, misinformation about the war in Ukraine. Mm. And oh boy, F- first of all, it has a lot of views. So that is probably, it's quickly becoming our most viewed video on YouTube. Oh, really? But yeah. it's it stirred up quite a controversy on the, the comment section. So it's um, it's ridiculous. Not mine, though. So I, I gave a talk, like an introduction to skepticism to, to kickstart the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, luckily, this was the first event since we started it after COVID. Since COVID, I should mm. say, probably. Because it's still not over yet. Not but, really now. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, but it was very well attended in person as well, which I was uh, very happy about. And mm. next week, on Monday, we have our usual monthly radio appearance as well. Mm. And we decided to do something very different this time. We're going to be doing a radio Q&A for the listeners of the radio. Mm. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Interesting. See if you get any trolls or if you get sensible questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I have to tell you one th- one more thing, but I, I know it's it's getting really, really long, this introductory p- uh, part of the show, <laughs> but I have to tell you about my latest experience uh, with uh, the wonderful nature of science and what it can be used for. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, I first heard about the analytical methods that can be used to determine the authenticity of a painting. Mm-hmm. And I found it fascinating. Um, it's very similar to bioarchaeology, uh, yeah. for example, that I, I was a little bit involved with uh, when I did my research in uh, York in the UK. But sometime in our, around September, a friend of mine, we have a very old circle of friends still going very strongly. And one of my friends in that circle told me she was working for a lab doing forensic studies of the paintings. And it was in Budapest. So I ended up visiting their, their lab last Sunday and... And boy, I had a great time. It was 
Forensics are fascinating in general, but this kind of forensic studies and analyses, they are absolutely mind-blowing what you can be you, you can do. For example, imagine that someone tries to sell a painting for a mere hundred and fifty thousand pounds or euros, uh, claiming that it's a Delacroix, for example. Mm-hmm. So they bring the piece to the lab to try and prove that it's authentic. It's really a Delacroix. And then the analysis of the different pigments, the analysis of the different layers, uh, brings the yields a completely different result. <laughs> like because the pigments, for example, they can date the the paintings by the pigments used because some pigments, some kind of paints were not produced before a certain time in history. Right. So if it's like some kind of pigment that was used only from the beginning of the 20th century, it cannot be a Delacroix because Delacroix died in the 1860s or something. Mm. And they, they use X-ray analyses. They can actually determine the pigments by both the size and shape of the, 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 the individual pigment uh, crystals, but also by chemical analysis, which they use an XRF for, which is an X-ray fluorescence handheld machine. And it's really like something out of a sci-fi. I've seen that before. I've used it before. But it's still amazing that you like shoot with it, <laughs> like with a gun. And then it tells you the chemical composition. But it's it's non-destructive. It's non-destructive. It's strictly non-destructive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope and so. when it comes to the chemical composition, because I, do, I want to avoid people criticizing me for being inaccurate about my explanation, it's the elements above the atomic number of 14 that can be found with this. So okay. it's strictly non organic material. But I guess nobody's that, that painting can... with hydrogen anyway, right? No, 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 but but <laughs> carbon, carbon could oh, be carbon because there 12, there right? are lots of yeah. Uh, okay. There are lots of carbon um, is usual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, by the way, it's not 12, it's 6 because carbon Oh. The atomic number is is 6. Okay. But it has I believe you. I I am a finance guy. I don't know this stuff not by heart. All right. Okay. Yeah, but I I could I yeah I could not uh, go into any kind of conversation about our books. I mean the the account. <laughs> so. <laughs> right. So, but speaking of history, yeah, we should probably get on with that <laughs> part of the show. Yeah. So let's move on to this week in skeptical history, also known as Trish. It's always difficult to distinguish between the history of science and the history of skepticism, but I, we try always to, to to find a skeptical angle as well, even if we're just talking about great scientists. And when great scientists come in twos, that's a special occasion. Mm-hmm. And now I'm referring to the twin brothers, August and Jean-Félix Picard. No, 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 it's Jean-Luc Picard. I, I have seen the No, film. no, no. <laughs> 
Actually, there is a connection. Oh, Because Gene really? Roddenberry was such a great admirer of the work of the Picard family ah. that... Um, so he wove that into the Star Trek yes, universe. into yeah. the Star Trek universe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is how Jean-Luc Picard came about. And I think it was... If uh, some of our listeners know this, please let us know. Please get in touch. Because I vaguely remember that it was... If not mentioned, it was implied that he's a descendant of Jean-Félix Picard. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, 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 but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Okay. Okay, so the occasion on which we commemorate the, the brothers, Auguste and Jean-Félix, is that they were born on the 28th of January, 1884. And they were born in Basel. In Switzerland, mm -hmm. current day Switzerland, which was back then, it was like one of the most enlightened cities in Europe and like a refuge for people who like to think differently. And uh, the Picard brothers went on to study at the Swiss Institute of Technology in Zurich. But uh, one of them, August, uh, remained in Switzerland for a while, then moved to Belgium. But the other brother, Jean-Félix, he went to America. So he's often referred to as American, but he was Swiss originally. Mm -hmm. So what did he do? Actually, both of them dealt with heights. So they were fascinated by heights. And August became a physicist, while Jean-Félix became a chemist and a chemical engineer, basically. Mm -hmm. They were both dealing with how to reach very high altitudes. And August was fascinating by the depth of the ocean as well. So uh, he built equipment to be able to do that. F f when it comes to altitudes, high altitudes, in the 1930s, there was a bit of a race for height. Poland, Spain, the United States, uh, they were all competing with each other to capture and hold the world's absolute altitude record. So what records are we talking about? When it comes to the airships, for example, that were used in the first before the First World War and around the First World War, then between the two, we all are familiar with the Hindenburg and the catastrophe as well. But the record altitude that could be reached was about 7,800 meters. So mm -hmm. it wasn't really high. Well, what these guys managed to achieve, August especially, he could go up to 53,000 feet, which is about 19 to 20,000 meters above the ground. Yeah, that's higher than your normal airliner, right? It is like twice that. It twice, twice the altitude, yeah. almost twice the altitude. So, how did he do that, and how did they do that? Because both both of them were in, involved in in that business of reaching the skies. And um, August divides something that was called a bathyscape, and a bathyscape was like a, a sphere that was built strongly enough to be able to withstand large pressure differences. Mm. Uh, so the outside and the inside pressure, the difference between the two was very significant, mm. especially if you wanted to be able to hold a living, breathing person inside that. So that was used for both the capsules that were taken up with uh, balloons and uh, going down to the, into the deep oceans. Ah, I thought that was only for the sea, for, for going down. 
But you used it also for balloons. The original sphere yeah. that he used in the bath escape, which yeah. was the the one going down into the ocean, mm. that was, by the way, it was called the FNRS, which was um, named after the Belgian Institute, which was called Fonds National de la Recherche Scientifique. Uh, oui. So it's the National Fund for scientific research i think the the translation of that is he could have thought of a more catchy name for that thing, <laughs> yeah there, I think. yeah it was boat not very imaginative taken, i'm sure exactly. already then but something <laughs> yeah. like that. actually his uh his son jacques he continued building these bath escapes and he named one of them trieste uh, actually it was built by august but he further developed it and in the 1960s actually in 1960 jacques picard and don walsh they were the ones reaching the deepest ever place Ooh. on earth the challenge deep they came up with uh, more than 11,500 meters of depth but then they later it was recalculated recalibrated and now we know it as about 10,911 meters and they found a couple of living organisms down there so like fish hmm. flatfish and all that proving f- f- once and for all that even at that depth under that high pressure animals can live so life can exist yeah and uh, so that was his thing Jacques Cousteau whom we all know and and heard of he was a great admirer of uh, Auguste Picard's work and they knew each other actually mm. <laughs> so which was really cool and um, even though he lived a very very dangerous life because of all the experimental stuff that he worked with he lived up to an age of 78 just like his brother, his twin brother, Jean Picard. And Jean, who f- managed to find uh, himself a partner, a life partner, who was willing to, to do every crazy stunt with him, like going up in balloons to the, the, the higher atmosphere. But also, he was the one who came up with the idea of uh, very light balloons and sets of balloons that could be used together to lift relatively large weights up into the atmosphere. Mm. And uh, you probably heard of something that was called Skyhook. Skyhook, yeah. Skyhook, yeah. So that was also a high-altitude balloons that he developed with uh, together with Otto Winzen, a German engineer, and uh, they were used by the United States Navy Office of Naval Research. And uh, before the Second World War, they had to stop for a while their their research. But after the Second World War, they resumed the research. And in 1948, a very interesting incident happened that stirred up quite a media frenzy. On January 7th, 1948, the Captain Thomas Mantle had a terrible accident when following something that was unidentified, an unidentified flying object really going very fast up into the atmosphere, the higher atmosphere. There you have it. UFOs are real. Exactly. A P-51 Mustang was the fighter that he was uh, flying. And uh, when they observed that flying object 
climbing very high and we are t- talking about an ascent rate of about three to six meters per second which was very high that was almost the normal climb rate for a fighter hmm. but it was not moving like a plane it was just going high straight up. up and straight up and nobody expected that to happen because it was it was really secretive it was a secret research that they were doing yeah and he went so high up that he broke formation and he followed the balloon from the distance, tried to keep up with it, and he ended up going so high up that he lost consciousness and blacked out and uh, started a rolling dive with the plane, and he crashed. So obviously the media picked it up. It was all ready to go. I mean, it was one of the first... UFO incidents recorded in the tw- the middle of the 20th century and it was probably most likely based on that balloon mm. that uh, they were experimenting with and uh, those balloons are probably still the most frequently seen unidentified flying objects yeah <laughs> that trigger UFO sightings isn't that fascinating it i mean is. yeah and we know a lot about the higher atmosphere because of that kind of research, that those balloons could be sent up. I mean, we're talking about balloons that were made out of latex, rubber, and plastic. Really cool stuff. Yeah. So, happy birthday, the Picards. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's nice to think of uh, how it's all connected to Jean-Luc Picard as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. There is something that we haven't done in a while. And Mm. um, yeah. He's, I wonder. He's calling for it. So, uh, have you got something to poke the Pope for, Pontus? <laughs> yes, it won't be too much about actually about Francis, but it's all related, of course. So, this is the bell knelled for Pell news, right? Ooh, Pontus pokes Pell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. This has been a while, but I've been away, so I'm sorry. But uh, So you've probably heard about this. But Australian Cardinal George Pell, protector of pedophiles and also an accused, convicted, and then, quote-unquote, exonerated pedophile himself, uh, he died unexpectedly on the 11th of January. He was 81 years old, so no spring chicken, but it was still a surprise. <laughs> he attended the funeral of Pope Benedict just a few days before, And uh, he apparently died after having had a cardiac arrest following a hip surgery. So so it wasn't wasn't expected. Regardless of uh, Pell's own guilt, there is no doubt that in his career he was much more interested in protecting the quote-unquote reputation of the Catholic Church than making sure that people and children were safe from sexual predators. There are several examples where he could have removed known pedophiles from office, but he did not. He was heavily criticized in 2002 for suggesting that abortion was a, quote, worse, more scandal, end quote, than Catholic clergy abuse of young people. So, uh, yeah, he was, he was very conservative, a strong opponent of same-sex marriage and homosexuality, uh, also abortion and contraception. All things that I think, and we all sensible people think, should be basic human rights. He was in charge of the much-criticized so-called Melbourne response, 
back in Australia, which was supposed to respond to claims of clergy abuse, but didn't actually accomplish very much. This was in the 90s, and when he was uh, Archbishop of Melbourne, Australia. He rose in the ranks of the Catholic Church and was put in charge of finances by Frankie in 2014. At the time, he was considered the third most powerful figure in the Catholic Church after Francis himself and also Pietro Parolin, who is the Secretary of State of the Vatican. Now, there was a funeral service for Pell in the Vatican on 14th of January, and he will then be buried back in Sydney on 2nd of February. But the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, stated very early and very clearly that he, quote, could not think of anything more distressing, end quote, for victims than a state funeral for George Pell back in Sydney. So no state funeral for him, and that is saying something. So we have talked about Pell, uh, Cardinal Pell, many times before, so no need to repeat all that, except to say that all's well that ends Pell. (laughs) (laughs) We also have, there's some more trouble also for the Vatican that has happened in my absence here. There is the so-called trial of the century against the Cardinal Betchew and others, where witnesses are now openly contradicting each other But this is very complicated, and I I think I will come back to this when we know more, and I think this can take time. This trial will probably drag on for years, unless it's dropped altogether, because it's such a mess. The prosecution has done a lot of mistakes. There's been accusations of uh, Francis indirectly affecting the trial and all of that. I don't know if we will ever know the truth behind this. Then we are also waiting for progress in the investigation into what happened to the so-called Vatican girl. This is a a girl, young, I think she was 15, Emanuela Orlandi, who disappeared in 1983, a long time ago. And that uh, this incident or this crime, or what it probably is a crime, but the Vatican has now very reluctantly decided to look into this again. I think I've mentioned this before. Nothing has happened on that yet, but we are waiting what's going to happen. And then we have, of course, some other things like the Vatican investigating rumors of a quote-unquote sex party at Newcastle Cathedral in the UK. The Dean of St. Mary's Cathedral allegedly invited worshippers to his living quarters during lockdown for some Well, after worship, good times, I think we would call it, at least for him personally. Didn't go well for him, though. He was called Father Michael McCoy, and uh, he actually killed himself already back in April of 2021 when he realized that there was an investigation ongoing by the police. Two years later, the Vatican has now decided that perhaps they need to look a little bit into this so they've opened an investigation. I don't think they were very eager to, to do so, but uh, they felt that they had to. So I, I would say, summarizing the last couple of weeks for the Vatican, pretty much business as usual yeah. uh, for Frankie. And uh, yeah, uh, the story continues. Yeah, they haven't changed a bit. No. But you have grown to be able to badmouth recently that people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I think, uh, I don't know if it's good or bad, but 
Well, we we did have this, uh, didn't I have that the Latin saying the other yes program the the mortuis nihil nisi bonum yes. don't speak ill about the dead or something like that I I don't uh, subscribe to that <laughs> I do it yeah me neither I don't I don't I don't either because it's uh, you would just be part of the problem then I yeah. mean if, yeah right if you shied away from sure from talking about that so thank you very much for doing that thanks a lot. And uh, let's see what's going on in Europe. I mean, outside of the Vatican. <laughs> For example, uh, there, there is a very Catholic country that uh, we need to mention here, and that is Poland. Mm, heard of it, yes. And uh, there has been in the last couple of days a bit of uh, trouble brewing on social media for Poland. Uh, so much so that even high government officials had to step in and make a couple of announcements to clear that shit up. So what am I talking about? Probably some of our listeners have heard that uh, a fake map has been circulating on the social media that was allegedly from a weather broadcast from the Polish TV channel TVP1. The problem with that fake map is that it shows a historic kind of territory of Poland that was a little bit larger than the current country is, which mm. is not small in, its, in and of itself. But the key here is that it shows parts of current-day Ukraine as Poland. Mm. There was one tweet that started like, oh, while well, they are showing off what their intent is, that uh, they want parts of northwestern Ukraine to go back to the territory of Poland as well. And it looks like a screenshot, but further analysis brought out a couple of problems with that alleged screenshot. First of all, you probably know that Polish language uses a lot of special accents, right? Wrocław. Yes, exactly. So a couple of very special characters they use. Yeah. Uh, none of that is visible on that map. So it is a little bit suspicious that it's actually not a Polish-made ah. map. The other problem is that when it comes to the weather forecast... The style of map that they usually use has nothing to do with this kind of map that is shown in the alleged screenshot. Mm. And the third problem is that the woman who appears on the, the, the alleged screenshot doesn't even work at that TV channel. <laughs> so someone really just wanted to get the misinformation out so that it has a kind of a destabilizing effect of sorts. And we know that misinformation campaigns can do that. And this might be the goal behind that, that incident. Hmm. Yeah, to try and suggest that Poland is about to annex parts of Ukraine is a bit far-fetched, I believe. But we are living in such delicate times that we need to deal with stuff like this and address these pieces of misinformation. A couple of Polish government officials did that too, like Stanislav Zarin, in the name of whom there are several of those previously mentioned special characters. 
So I, I'm not sure I pronounce it well, but uh, people listening to this, you know what you can, you have to do. <laughs> Please let us know how Stanislav... Send in all your sound files telling us how it's supposed <laughs> yes. to be pronounced. Yes. Uh, so he's the Secretary of State at the Chancellery of the Prime Minister of Poland. And he gave an interview to Polish press agency. Apparently, even the Kremlin started to run with this story. And obviously, they tried to twist it to their needs. Of course. Claiming that parts of that map show that even currently Belarus and Russia would be annexed by that. So it's it's a bit of a historical map. I wouldn't say I'm an expert on Polish history, but I don't remember what period of time that was because it's it sa- also says Slovakia, which didn't exist before as a country before the First World War, before the collapse of the Austria-Hungarian Empire. So I'm a little bit confused about that map as well. Uh, it might be completely made up in yeah. and of itself. But it's typical uh, for conspiracy theories like that to, yeah. to suggest that the way you announce that you're going to annex another country is to do it in a weather map. Yeah. <laughs> it makes no sense at all. So meteorologists are in on the idea that we are going to invade another country. <laughs> so we are going to put it on display on national yeah. television just... Yeah. For why? That makes no sense at all. Yeah, it does. It does to a conspiracy theory mindset. I mean, someone with a conspiracy. Well, I would uh, argue that conspiracy theories do not make sense. That's that's my argument. Yes, but they do for the people propagating it, Um, and they see it as a glitch in the system that tries to to hide it. Any bad agent in the world cannot help by leaving hints all over the place for what are they <laughs> going to do in the future. Yeah. Stupid, silly. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But all I right. thought I should probably mention it. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. Totally different subject now. I have heard this from a Swedish newspaper, but it is okay. a worldwide thing. Uh, through influencers on social media, a lot of things spread that way. There is now a trend of more and more women choosing to give birth at home. So this is supposed to be, quote unquote, instinctual and natural and yada yada, all of those logical fallacies. Of course, people sometimes do have a poor experience at modern hospitals, maybe not getting the full attention that they expect, not the peace and quiet. And if you do make sure that you have good assistance at home and a possibility to quickly go to a hospital as soon as anything goes wrong, then perhaps I can understand that. It would be nice to give birth at home. I I, I can understand the appeal of the idea. But now there's a worrying trend that you're supposed to take care of everything yourself with no assistance at all. That means not even having a midwife present or anybody else with any kind of qualifications. So this is now called, quote, free birthing or sometimes, quote, wild pregnancy. Uh, of course, it can be very dangerous and not at all as romantic as it might seem. And this is a quote from a mother in Australia. So I told you, I told you this is a worldwide thing. Uh, she advocates this. She's done it herself. And she says, quote, It was an instinct, knowing that my body is designed for birthing, and knowing that the wisdom of thousands of women who have come before me lives in my bones and in my body, end quote. (laughs) Oh, yay. That is not how things work. 
Luckily, of course, for this woman, all went well. So I'm very happy to, to say that. But we should remember that before modern healthcare was a thing, giving birth was probably the most dangerous thing you could do as a woman. Yeah. There's so many things that can go wrong and you may need urgent help. And looking at certain examples of people who did it and were lucky enough that nothing happened doesn't guarantee it will work for you. So uh, it's quite literally death-threatening to do this uh, for you and for the baby. Yeah. So um, I think it's the typical case of uh, not only the natural fallacy that everything natural must be good, uh, which is not true, but also it's a function of that we have forgotten how bad it used to be in the past. Since everyone has given birth in safe environments, uh, in, in hospitals, for generations now, at least in the Western world, many of us have no idea how bad it used to be. Let's say 100 years ago, maybe even not that long ago. So please don't fall for this. It might sound appealing and natural and everything else, but please trust modern healthcare, trust the science. You may need help and then the best thing is to be in an hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least have someone qualified to yeah. assist with yeah. you. And, and some means to quickly get to a hospital if you need exactly. to. I mean, have a car ready so you yeah. can be there in yeah. 10 minutes if, if, it's, if something goes wrong. But it is safer to be in, in a hospital. I think I've mentioned before that my twin sister's daughter... Mm-hmm. Is almost the same age as Luna. Yes. Yeah. Her name is Nova. She was supposed to be born at home. Mm-hmm. My sister wanted a home birth. Mm-hmm. In the UK, you can do that with assistance. Yeah. So they allocate someone to you that will be there yeah. to help and ready to call it if you need proper help and need to be taken to the hospital. But she ended up giving birth in the hospital in the first place because there were a couple of things because of which they thought that it it was a safer option. But the most important thing to make sure is that you and the baby are safe and everything else comes second. I'm believing that you can do everything by yourself and you don't need any assistance. It's all natural. It's all instinctual. That may sound good, but no, it's not a good idea. So many women in history have uh, died from giving birth. Yeah. Don't chance it. And one reason for that is, as you mentioned, that someone was referring to the design, that I was designed to do this. Yeah, you know what? Humans are a very poor design. <laughs> yes. And the fact that our females have to give birth to a massively underdeveloped baby is the fact that the baby has a massive head and a large brain and a birth canal can only be so wide. And to be able to be born, you have to give birth to them at a very, very underdeveloped stage. And that calls for complications. So that is that is something yeah. that is prone to go sideways. Yeah. And uh, I mean, sometimes even literally. But um, <laughs> yeah, so you have to be careful. Yep. And we are not here to give, as we often say, to give medical advice. But the best medical advice anyone can give is to seek professional attention. <laughs> yes. With whatever you have. And uh, we're not implying that um, giving birth is like any kind of illness. It's not. And being no, no. being but pregnant is not wrong, either. So. But it can go wrong and you need help when something goes wrong. All right. 
and that's one of the problems with uh, alternative medicine. And when uh, we propagate alternative medicine and peddle the nonsense that they do. And it's one thing to make a living out of offering pseudoscientific alternative practices to people. Because to a certain extent, they are responsible for their own decisions that Mm -hmm. they make. Uh, Slightly misinformed, though, they may be. But when it comes to animals or children who cannot make those decisions for themselves, that's a whole different kind of issue, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that chiropractors, as Simon Singh very eloquently put it, quote, happily promote bogus treatments, <laughs> unquote. And one of the three centers of education of those bogus treatments in the UK has been the McTimony College of Chiropractic for decades. The institution was founded in 1972. That's the historical background. But now they take this madness one step further by offering a veterinary chiropractic course for their students. Mm. And they rejoice over the fact that now the students don't have to have any prior knowledge or training to become veterinary cracks, basically. (laughs) So they're very proud. Beforehand, they would have had to go through the training as a chiropractor for humans and then specialize in other animals. Now they just provide the same thing for veterinarians or wannabe veterinarians. The other issue is that they keep referring to their course as a university program, but they don't specify the actual institution behind them. So I looked it up on Wikipedia And according to the Wikipedia article, the actual wording is that it's validated by Ulster University. Well, Ulster University exists, and I looked up on the website of Ulster University, and it says that the college belongs to their Faculty of Life and Health Sciences. What the actual fuck? So it's a university college then, or at least works and advertises itself as such thereby validating this nonsense. Hmm. And that is outrageous. So I would gladly nominate them for a really wrong price. (laughs) Um, And especially for now that in September 2023, they will start this veterinary chiropractic course. And it's for four years. So four years of brainwashing into pseudoscience. Yeah. You know, is... It doesn't matter how much bullshit you preach. If you preach it for four years, it do- it's still bullshit. It is. It doesn't improve over time. And I can't, for myself personally, I can't get the picture out of my head now about a chiropractic trying to correct the spine of a horse. For some reason, I'm, I'm going to a horse. How the hell do you do that? <laughs> Crack La, the horse neck whispering of horse. Mate, horse whispering makes more, much more sense to uh, me. Yeah, yeah, right. But, yeah. But... They claim that the, the modules include anatomy, physiology, veterinary science, and all the clinical skills, which sounds fascinating. But my problem is that if it's all through the lenses of chiropractic, yeah. it's not going to be anywhere near science. Yeah. And uh, these are scientific disciplines. And uh, so physiology was one of my favorite modules at university. I loved it. It's fascinating, but I would never want to listen to any talk from a chiropractic who who teaches physiology because it will be, I don't know, for some reason, yeah, call me close-minded, but for some reason I think (laughs) it it wouldn't be based on science. All right, so yeah. Hmm. (laughs) 
and they say an institution in Oxford. So yeah, uh, this is, by the way, he didn't coin the term that Edzard Ernst refers to them as quackademia, which I really like. Quackademia, that's good. Quackademia, yeah. All right, one more news item before we move on here. We've mentioned the Swedish skeptics and the confounder of the year award earlier Mm -hmm. in this episode. In 2019, this award went to a woman called Linda Karlström for spreading anti-vax nonsense and also a lot of other conspiracy theories, Holocaust denial, among other things. There was a documentary at the time which aired on Swedish state television about her. A reporter interviewed her off and on camera and also at times with hidden microphone. And uh, this was really devastating for her reputation, uh, for Linda Karlström herself. She really came across as one of the worst conspiracy and misinformation spreader you can imagine, which of course contributed to her getting the Confounder of the Year award. In any case, the news for this week is that Linda Karlström has sued the Swedish government for, quote, emotional damage and, quote, invasion of privacy end quote, for allowing the Swedish state television to air that documentary. This is a civil suit. It's not a a criminal one. But she feels that the Swedish government, rather than the Swedish TV network, is to blame for her suffering and uh, that the documentary, quote, inhibits the exercise of her beliefs and freedom freedom from expression. No, freedom of expression, (laughs) end quote. So I'm I'm not a legal expert. This sounds very dubious to me. I don't think uh, this will go anywhere. I would be very curious to see what's going on. But on the face of it, I don't think she has a case. If she has the same level of knowledge about the law that she has about science and reality in general, I think she doesn't know what she's doing. Um, <laughs> we will see how this ends up. But since she was she was the confounder of the year. Awardee, is that a word? Uh, I thought we would yeah. mention it. And I, I understand that she felt very <laughs> betrayed by this reporter who interviewed her sometimes without even telling. But uh, I think sometimes the, the end justifies the means. And it was very yeah. important to expose Linda Karlström as the misinformationer or <laughs> misinformationer or I confounder that. that she is and was and uh, she has done a lot of harm and she is totally in my opinion totally delusional when it comes to how she sees reality and uh, she's doing a lot of harm we, we will see how this civil suit will end up mm, good i just realized that we could use the word misinformer mm. Yeah. Because the informer is someone who you get the information from. The misinformer is someone who you get misinformation from. You're right. Right? That's right. Misinformer. Okay. Mm-hmm. I haven't yet, haven't heard that before. <laughs> Me neither. So we, I, just, we've, I just came so up we, with it. Oh, yeah. We, you've <laughs> come up with it, man. Nice. All right. Uh, let's move on. And I understand that this week we probably don't have a really wrong, but a really right... That is correct. Uh, since Annika is not here, I'm taking over. And uh, <laughs> I think to finish off, I think we uh, need some good news. So uh, mm-hmm. I turned it yeah. into a really right because I had a good candidate. This is actually a little bit old. It's from the 28th of December last year. but uh, So we missed it. But here it is. 
The Norwegian authorities have decided to revoke Jehovah's Witnesses' status as religion. So, so what does that mean? In Norway, and also in many other countries, including Sweden, authorities subsidize religious organizations. Uh, I personally don't think that's a good idea, but uh, it's based on the, I think, erroneous notion that organized religions are a positive force in society. But when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses, the Norwegian authorities opened an investigation earlier last year because of reports of forced exclusion of members and isolation of members that for some reason this organization didn't feel behaved properly. The uh, investigation found other irregularities as well with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, Well, you don't say. And uh, (laughs) the authorities have now stated that violations of children's rights and preventing members to freely leave the organization is in violation of the law in Norway. So this is not a criminal law. So what they're doing is not... Well, at least this decision doesn't mean that the Jehovah's Witnesses has done something criminal, but it's against the law regarding faith-based organizations which regulates which religions are entitled to government grants. So it's not a ban of Jehovah's Witnesses as such in Norway, but they will no longer receive any support from the authorities. So so they're basically they're basically correcting their own mistake of subsidizing them in yes, the first place. Yes. Well, right? so, so it's it's I can understand it in from a logical point of view. They have decided right or wrong, I say wrong, but they have decided that religions should get some sort of subsidies from the government, but only mm. if they live up to certain standards. Rules, and yeah. the Jehovah's mm-hmm, Witnesses yeah. does not in any case, in any way live up to the standards. So for revoking the funding of the abusive and dangerous cult that is Jehovah's Witnesses, the Norwegian (laughs) authorities get today's prize for being really right. We now just wait for them to realize that no religious activities should be sponsored by public means, Uh, but at least this is a step in the right direction. Very yeah. good. Well deserved. Yeah. And and if, yeah. if you want more information about Jehovah's Witnesses, we have an excellent interview with Lydia Finch, who is a survivor of this cult. Mm-hmm. And we interviewed her on episode 198. So look that up. Oh, that long ago. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> okay. We're talking about four years. Yeah, we've been <laughs> at it for a while. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And before we go, even though this is usually Onika's territory, I'd like to leave our listeners with a quote. And I found a very nice quote from Massimo Pigliucci. Italian professor of philosophy. Yeah, (laughs) they were, yeah, we were and they were referring to them, Massimo Polidora and Massimo Piucci, as Massimo and the other Massimo at the European Skeptics Congress that was. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, last year when we were there in Vienna. Yeah, and by the way, he agreed to do an interview with us at some point, so we should probably get around to do it. (laughs) And the quote goes very well with what we have covered today, because Mm -hmm. we talked about uh, the lack of data, the lack of research or proper results or properly uh, executed research protocols, especially when it comes to healthcare. So I think it goes very well with all, all those. And the quote is, Once data are ruled out as arbiters among theories, those theories become pointless, just another clever intellectual game. End quote. Yeah. <laughs> well said, yes. Massimo. Yeah, he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, he's, he's, he's quite clever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should probably guy. interview him. Yeah, uh, okay. That. But... Not this time and not on this episode because uh, it has become quite a long one, I think. Great to have you back, Pontus. Thank you. Hope we'll have Onika back as well next week. Hope so. But soon I will resume traveling again. So who knows when <laughs> I'm, I'll am i be off. But I'll try to be on every time, even if I travel. Thank you very much for joining me today, Pontus. Thank you. Many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Hello. Vislat. Tschüss. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu join us again next time but until then please send your feedback comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu we would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent if you have a local event or organization to promote please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe It's very... um Unusual and expect <laughs> Okay. So it's very unusual and unexpected. <laughs> I can't do this. I've been away for too long. Who's editing this week, by the way? I had no idea. It's going out unedited. We we're not going to edit anything this week. It's all okay. there. Okay. <laughs> Premium material. <laughs> <laughs> From the Polish poli- no, not police, Polish. <laughs> invasion of privacy. Invasion of privacy. Privacy or privacy? Both. Both, both. are okay. Religious infidelity. Uh, religious infidelity. <laughs> religious organizations. But thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh that was a bit weird. Yes. It putting again. it in plural you uh, you already you already <laughs> i already said thank you so yeah